Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The world of the future. Within the next two decades, we'll see a very different landscape on our roads. I think we're headed towards an all-electric fleet on the road. We're basically reached the point where range is no longer an issue. That's probably the biggest objection. But once you have 200 miles routinely at an affordable price, I think it's inevitable. And those electric cars could provide backup power to the electric grid and may even be driving themselves so we'll never need to park them. Also, crafting a new material that will take in and store solar energy and warm your clothes. The interesting thing for me was to you know, expand the horizons of what you can do with energy instead of just converting light to electricity. Now you can convert it to chemical energy and then ultimately release this energy as heat. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Today's program is full of good news and visions and dreams of the future, and we start with a deal to preserve a huge swath of rare coastal rainforest. Temperate rainforests make up less than 1% of the world's forests, and the biggest stretch is along the North Pacific coast from southern Alaska to northern California. And now, after years of negotiations, 85% of the Great Bear rainforest along the coast of British Columbia will be protected, with just 15% open for logging. It's wild and wet there, with giant trees, grizzly bears, gray wolves, salmon, and even the rare and revered white spirit bear. Industry, First Nations, government, and conservationists came together to forge this agreement, and to understand how, we called up Andrew McLeod, a reporter with the Vancouver-based magazine, The Taiyi. Andrew, welcome to Living on Earth. Oh, thank you for having me on. And I have to ask you about your magazine name, The Taiyi. Yeah, so it's a kind of salmon. Uh, we were set up as an alternative to the mainstream media more than 10 years ago, and the idea is sort of a swimming against the current kind of image. Swimming upstream, huh? Exactly. But not endangered as so many salmon are. No, no, perhaps under threat, but no. <laughs> so tell me about the Great Bear Rainforest in British Columbia. What's it like to be among the trees and wildlife? The Great Bear Rainforest was, well, it used to be known as the Mid Coast Timber Supply, and environmentalists renamed it around 1997, the Great Bear Rainforest, and it was the start of a campaign to save it. It's an area of 6.5 million hectares between the top end of Vancouver Island and the Alaska Panhandle. So that's an area about the size of Ireland, and it's quite remote. There are only about 14,000 people who live there. So much of it has never been logged. This is usually described as the largest intact temperate rainforest in the world. Very lush, mossy, moist, year-round ecosystem. They get something like a meter and a half of rain a year on the coast. So big, big trees, cedars and firs and spruce and such. And when you say big, big trees, how big are these big trees? Yeah, I mean, we're talking trees that five or six people put their arms around. You know, some of the cedars can be you know, 20 feet in diameter, that kind of thing. Like, they're big, big trees. Andrew, tell me, what is the spirit bear? They are a subspecies of black bear. They're a genetic variant that comes out white. So it's a white black bear. There are also grizzly bears there. There are whales, wolves, and just, you know, relatively pristine ecosystem up there. 
And who calls them spirit bears? Is this a First Nation thing? Is this something that environmental activists have cooked up? What is it? My understanding is it goes back through the First Nations. Uh, you know, there have always been these genetic variant bears there, and they were seen as, as special, for sure. So um, what does protecting 85% of this forest really mean? I mean, what's permitted in the 15% that's going to be logged? I mean, the way they describe that is working forest, so it's sort of open for logging, same kinds of standards as the rest of the province. Forest industry will tell you that that means protecting viewscapes, it means protecting old growth, it means protecting habitat for species at risk. In this case, it'll mean protecting bear dens. Critics will tell you that the logging industry always says that kind of thing, and, you know, it'll be destructive, damaging to the ecosystem. But on, on the other hand, the trade-off is that something like 85% of the remaining forest is being protected there. So it's, it's a, a balance. Andrew, what role did the science of ecosystem-based management have in making this plan, do you think? I mean, that's been part of the talking points from the start was, was that they were going to apply ecosystem-based management across the entire land base. You know, often in BC, we're something like 14% covered by parks, but, but a lot of times the parks they make are, you know, the tops of the mountains, it's the rock, it's the ice, it's, you know, places where there, there isn't a lot of commercial activity. So the idea is that what's protected will be representative of the different ecosystems that are present in the rainforest, things right down on the coast, you know, the valley bottoms, which is where the big trees grow. So how did this agreement come together? Uh, talk to me about the different roadblocks involved in making this work. What You have industry, you have environmental activists, you have First Nations, the Native American uh, population, we would say, in the United States, and the government. And when we did earlier work on Clackwood Sound, we understood that the B.C. government was part of the logging industry and that it has an interest in it. In the Great Bear as well. BC Timber Sales is a government company, and they're, they're one of the license holders up there. BC is very politically divided. You know, there are a lot of people who work in resource industries who, you know, are all for logging it and paving it. And the government, for the most part, over the history of the province, has been involved in encouraging that. And there are a lot of people who are here because it's beautiful, right? People who don't directly depend on resource jobs, but are here because they like the place. And there's a very strong, very healthy environmental movement here. I mean, this is the birthplace of Greenpeace. You know, David Suzuki, the Suzuki Foundation are here. Sierra Club is strong. A group called Forest Ethics were involved as well. You know, there's been fights in BC over land use going back 30 or 40 years. A lot of those fights were sort of valley by valley. Environmentalists sat down and said, well, how do we, you know, what's the next big battle and, and how do we fight it in a way that makes sense? And they started a markets campaign. So there, there are five main forest companies that hold the licenses up there. And they went to their customers and, and said, you know, basically, we'll make it uncomfortable for you if you want to take trees from here and, and turn them into to toilet paper and books and, and such. You know, we'll make it clear where they're coming from and what the destruction is like on the, on the land. And so the forest companies had incentive to sit down with them. And there was an initial agreement that was heavily towards protection. First Nations were involved in that as well. They went back to their communities, and, and a lot of the reaction they got was, well, wait a second, we need jobs here as well. They, they weren't necessarily all for protecting everything. So yeah, it's, we've been looking at 20 years of discussion, 10 years of serious negotiation, and involving all kinds of parties, 26 First Nations, five logging companies, three environmental groups, provincial government, some local governments. The idea is that they have come to some kind of a balance that everybody can live with. Before you go, Andrew, tell me, uh, what do you think was the secret sauce that uh, got everybody together this time? You know, longstanding conflict, a lot of discussion, finally a deal. 
Going back to when it started, I think it was that threat of the markets campaign. You know, Clockwood Sound, there were something like 700 people arrested there, and there were trials. And it gave forest products from British Columbia a, a bad name. You know, we were the Brazil of the North. I think the logging companies didn't want to go through that again. And then, then add into that, First Nations here have seen their rights. I mean, you know, we have a history where the powers in Europe sat down and divided up North America and BC was property of the Queen and all that. But there were lots and lots of people already living here. You know, lots of First Nations people will tell you they've been on the land for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and it's been sustainable, it's been healthy, that it's really only the last 150 years of colonialism where, uh, you know, you've seen clear cuts and destruction and species driven to to extinction. Um, on the other hand, there are lots of people from First Nations who are working in logging industry today as well. And over time, the First Nations have sort of reestablished their rights. There have been some uh, precedent-setting uh, cases just in the last few years that have recognized Aboriginal title does exist. The first sort of iteration of those court rulings was that, that First Nations people had to be consulted. The government can't just circle parts on the map and say, yeah, that's open for logging anymore. Andrew McLeod writes for the TAI and lives in Victoria, British Columbia. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Andrew. Yeah, thank you for having me on and thanks for your interest. For the land knows you're there The land knows you're there And the and trees and rivers give you friendship and care. Time to check out what Peter Dykstra has unearthed beyond the headlines now. Peter's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. It is on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi, Peter. What do you got? Well, hi, Steve. You know what? I have some good news. There's a paper from Carnegie Mellon University that says that in the year 2011 alone, air pollution related to U.S. energy production cost at least $131 billion in health and environmental impacts. Uh, wait a second. That's supposed to be good news? Yeah, it's good news because that same report placed the cost much higher at $175 billion back in 2002. And all of this, of course, is an educated guess, but the researchers tried to tally up the real costs of oil refineries, coal mining, electric generation, and oil and gas extraction. But uh, I'd think that the growth of the domestic oil and gas production from fracking would have driven those numbers up instead of down by 2011. Well, bear in mind there are some other factors, like the economic downturn in 2008, the move away from coal, and there may have been many other things that helped to negate that. Hmm. Well, what do you have next for us? Dare I bring a little more good news? Well, by all means, please. There's a study from the Scripps Oceanographic Institute that says that levels of potential carcinogens like mercury, DDT, and PCBs are at their lowest levels in 40 years in ocean fish. Whoa, how, how did that happen? The Scripps researchers pointed out what might be obvious, stronger laws, public pressure, and better corporate conduct, whether that was voluntary or otherwise. They've all helped to bring about some positive news. But is all this fishy news all positive? Yeah, it's a good one, Steve. All positive news in an environmental show. The Scripps researchers warned that many wild fish are still unsafe for human consumption. And that's no surprise. But they also said that smaller fish, often presumed to be safer than the fish at the top of the food chain, may in some cases be no safer at all. Hmm. Well, hey, what do you have for us from the History Vaults this week? 
Well, we're into the political season big time now, and four years ago this week, Donald Trump faced off with Scotland and their battle over a wind farm hit a fever pitch. Trump was livid over a proposal for 11 wind turbines to be built offshore from his billion-dollar golf resort near Aberdeen. He said Scotland's first minister, that's sort of the CEO of Scotland, Alex Salmon, would be remembered for centuries as the man who destroyed Scotland. Hmm, rather like those various English kings and generals, huh? Correct, and Trump might have fancied himself as Braveheart, defending Scotland by tilting at the threat of the windmills. Anyway, Trump waged a no-holds-barred court battle against the menace of wind power, which he saw as an environmental scourge that would taint the beauty of the golf course he had been plowing into the Scottish countryside. And with two final court defeats last year, the Trump battle against Scotland is over, and Scotland won. And uh, by the way, where do things stand now with the golf course and the wind farm? I'm sure that many of our listeners will be pleased to know that the golf course is open and that the green fees are only about $220 for 18 holes. Discounts are available if you're a loser. And uh, yeah, he named the golf course after himself. It's the Trump International Golf Links. As for the wind farm, it's still several years off. Hmm. And everyone's moved on? Not before Alex Salmon tore a page from the Trump playbook and called to Donald a three-time loser for his string of legal defeats, Trump responded by calling the now former first minister a has-been, which is technically correct because he has been out of office for almost two years. And when the UK parliament threatened to ban Trump over his anti-Islamic comments, Trump threatened to pull out of the golf project entirely. You know, I always thought that someone was supposed to take the high road in Scotland. Mm, everybody's taking the low road on this one. Peter Dykstra's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org. Talk to you soon, Peter. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. If you drive in the colder climes, on many mornings you need to scrape your windshield clear of ice. But you can de-ice the back window with just the push of a button. That's because it's illegal to put anything in windshield glass that could block the driver's view, such as heating wires. But now a team of researchers at MIT has come up with a chemical that would let windshield glass directly store solar energy and then release it on demand as heat to melt the ice. This chemical stores and releases energy by changing shape and could be very useful in electric cars that don't have engine heat for defrosting. And the same chemical could be woven into clothing fibers to capture the sun's energy and then give you some added warmth when you ask for it, even days later. I paid a visit to the lab where the MIT team has been working on this breakthrough and met up with researchers David Zitumirsky and Eugene Cho, who work at the lab of Professor Jeffrey Grossman. Hi, David. Hi, Eugene. Thanks. Hello. Let's go to the basics here, David. Now, most people, when they think of collecting solar energy, they think of converting it to electricity. But this is a chemical process. Tell me what you do. So, yes, it's quite different from solar cells where you absorb light and you convert it to electrical charge. In this case, what we do is we use these molecules that can absorb UV light and Instead of generating charges, what they do is they change shape, and by changing shape, they can store chemical energy this way. Okay, so sunlight hits this molecule, it changes shape, and can store its energy, and then how do you get the energy back out? 
So you can trigger the material in several ways. One way is to add a small amount of heat and the material will release more heat than you add in. The other methods are triggering it with light or you can apply an electric field to the material. What made you think that it would be possible to do this? The field of these kind of fuels is not new. What is novel here is their application in solid state that enables them to be utilized in consumer goods. And so we chose a molecule that was already known to be stable and that had this kind of behavior, but the key was to employ it in solid state and make very nice and uniform films. Okay, introduce me to your molecule, please, and let me get my mouth ready for the pronouncer. So the molecule is called azobenzene. Azobenzene, that's not so hard to say. Yeah, and basically we take this azobenzene and we polymerize it, meaning we link up units of azobenzenes together, and that enables us to make very nice films. So if you can make a film, how transparent might this film be? Right now it has a yellowish-orange tinge, but in principle we have simulations that show that you can actually tailor the, the film to be fully transparent and visible. So what were the big challenges of getting this to work? You understood the scientific principles here, but you were looking to cut the costs and make it simple. Yes, exactly. So one of the directions that things moved in before I joined this group was putting these molecules on carbon nanotubes in order to improve their properties. And so that's expensive inherently because you need carbon nanotubes and the solubility of the material wasn't very high. I come from a background in uh, nanocrystals and we were using these nanocrystals back in uh, Canada in Toronto to absorb photons and convert it to electricity. So it was basically a solar cell technology. And the idea there was to make a paint, a solar paint that you would simply put on a substrate and it would you know, make everything much more inexpensive. This polymer that we have right now is also essentially a paint. You can deposit it directly from solution. The interesting thing for me was to you know, expand the horizons of what you can do with energy instead of just converting light to electricity. Now you can convert it to chemical energy and then ultimately release this energy as heat. Whose idea was this? It was a, a collective meeting between my supervisor and I and uh, Eugene. And we just sort of sat there and we thought, how could we make something that people were actually going to care about? And this is what came out of it. Gene Cho, you're a graduate student here at MIT. Gene, why are you excited to work on this project? It was a lot different from other research before because before, when I joined back in 2012, what was big was solar panels, but everybody was working on that. I wanted to do something slightly different from the conventional solar panel industry. And when I talked to Jeff, he suggested this project where there's molecules, not large panels, that could absorb the sunlight and could use it in different applications, in this case, in the form of heat. So here we are in your laboratory at MIT. Give us a tour, show us the machines and the material here. What the, what's what? So this is the fume hood, and we work in it because of toxic materials. How toxic is this stuff? In small molecule form, it's somewhat toxic, but as soon as you make a polymer out of it, and that's another advantage, it suddenly becomes not so toxic at all. So in here, we have things like pumps in order to evacuate containers with solvents because we need to dry things off. We have scales to weigh things out. We have all sorts of solvents in order to separate things out. We have some vacuum lines and nitrogen lines. This is called the Schlenk line. 
And what do you have scribbled here on the window? Sometimes we just write chemical equations and how we engineer these materials right directly onto the glass. <laughs> so what do we have here? So here we have a film on top of a glass substrate, as you can see, it has a orange yellow tinge. And this essentially is an example of what a type of film we'd make to do all sorts of investigations for heat release. Well, that's pretty clear. There's a little bit of yellow orange around the edge there, but if you look through it, it's a pair of sunglasses would cut out more light than that. Now, I understand one of the applications for this might be in a windshield of a car to de-ice a car. How, how would that work? What you would do is you put this material inside of the windshield, and when you wanted to de-ice the windshield, you would hit a button and it would trigger the material to release any energy that it has stored. And the idea is to melt the layer of ice right between the main layer of ice and the windshield itself. So you're not actually melting all of the ice, you're just melting a thin sheet of it, and then you can remove it with a windshield wiper, for example. It would just slide right off. So what's your best guess as to how you get from the yellow, the yellowish-orange, to something that's really completely transparent, translucent? The reason this molecule results in a yellow film is because it absorbs along various parts of the visible spectrum. And what you can do is you can attach different types of functional groups onto the molecule, and this will shift the absorption spectra around. People are very interested in this, I gather, because in electric cars, you use a lot of energy to do something like de-ice or, or heat the car. Exactly, yes. Now, instead of running electricity through metal wires or, or a metal screen, you simply employ energy that you get for free just by absorbing sunlight. By the way, how much energy is used in an electric car for things like de-icing the windshield or heating the people? We've estimated approximately 30%, so this kind of technology would certainly be able to make a dramatic impact on electric vehicles. Now, one thing that I'm really intrigued about is the notion of heating clothes. So if I walk outside on a sunny day and my clothing gets some energy in it, and then later when it's colder, I can just hit a button and it'll keep me warm like the electric blanket. So this is one of the applications that is closer to the market because you could feel as much as two to three or maybe five degrees, and this is achievable today with these materials. The way we envision of using it is to integrate it into fibers that you would then make clothing out of, or what you could do is you could just take a separate sheet of the stuff, and in certain cases it might be appropriate to just attach the sheet of the stuff onto the clothing itself. So this could be like an updated blanket or sheet. Hang the sheet outside, gathers all this energy, then have it at night, and if it's a little cold, hit a switch, and I've got something a little bit warmer. Yes, exactly. You could use it as a solar blanket, uh, for sure, and it might be much more appropriate for places that don't have an electrical outlet. For example, if you're camping, or especially in third world countries where they don't necessarily always have access to electricity, this would be quite useful to staying warm at night. So there I am on my expedition with my solar blanket. What would release the heat? So you'd have to have a system that can trigger this material. And a simple one might be just carrying around a blue LED with you. They could just get this process going. So you zap it with more light and it says, oh, I'm free now. Exactly. Use a different wavelength of light and you could trigger it that way. <laughs> that could be a problem. Though. You're walking down the street and somebody happens to have one of those things and, oh, oh, I'm feeling a little warm now. Yeah, that's certainly one thing to get around, making sure that this material is only exposed to the right kind of radiation at the appropriate time. Okay, this sounds great in theory, but 
is it affordable to put it in something like clothes or a windshield? Yeah, so the process itself is very simple. It takes two synthesis steps to make the material itself. And you can make it on a very large scale, on kilogram scale. We've easily scaled our stuff up to grams. And as far as the cost of the actual material, it's actually quite low. Now, you're a graduate student, Gene, so what's your thesis going to be about? Hopefully to get these molecules to work. <laughs> Let's go forward 10 or 20 years. How do you think this work will have been applied in, the, in these coming years? Well, I guess with this, it could expand into, with higher energy density store, be a stovetop or used to de-ice like pipes in bigger scales rather than just windshields for larger applications, I guess. So how long before we see this coming to market? I would say that it is possible somebody will pick this up as a startup fairly soon, maybe on a length scale of a year or two, because there's things you can do with these materials right now. David Zizomirsky is a Banting Fellow, postdoc associate, and Gene uh, Cho is a graduate student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, working on solar thermal fuels with MIT professor Jeff Grossman. Gentlemen, thanks so much for taking the time to show us around your lab. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's too hot for words. Why bother with conversation? Don't let's walk or even talk if you want to make love okay. Well, it's much too hot. Back in 2011, when gasoline prices in the U.S. were close to $4 a gallon, President Obama called for a million electric cars on the road in America by 2015. But so far, Americans have only bought 400,000 EVs, less than half that goal. Range and price seem to be much of the problem. A $30,000 electric car barely goes 100 miles on a charge, even less if it's cold. And if you want to go 300 miles on a charge, you have to shell out $100,000 for a Tesla. But that's about to change. Tesla and General Motors both say they will soon sell electric cars that will go 200 miles on a single charge for about $35,000. The Tesla is called Model 3, and the Chevy is called the Bolt. We called up green car expert and journalist Jim Matavalli to get the latest scoop on EVs. Welcome to Living on Earth, Jim. It's great to be on, Steve. So we've just had the Detroit Auto Show. What stood out to you? How, how green were the cars? Well, it's interesting. What's happening is the automakers are starting to put out plug-in versions of their cars just sort of as a matter of course. And I'm talking about mostly plug-in hybrids with maybe 30 to 40 miles of all-electric range. And they're not making a big deal out of it. It's just becoming part of the background. Uh-huh. Hey, which of those plug-in hybrids did you like? Well, uh, I liked a lot of them. I, I think the Audi A3 is a really exciting car. There's going to be a plug-in hybrid version of the Volvo S90. I was very excited by seeing the Chevy Bolt. I've been waiting for that for quite a while. Now, let me be sure I heard you correctly. You said Chevy Bolt, B as in boy, not V as in Volt, huh? Exactly. B as in Bolt is the companion car to the Chevy Volt. It is a all-electric battery car with 200 miles of range and a price around $35,000. That's after federal incentives, probably. Wow, that's cheap. Yeah, yeah. See, what happened is Tesla drew a line in the sand and said it was going to come out with its Model 3, 
and that would be a 200-mile range car for about $35,000. So GM looked at that and said, well, we can beat them to market. And essentially, that's what's happened. The Model 3 will be shown next month. Tell me about the Model 3 that Tesla has announced that it's going to have. And how is this different from the other electric vehicles we've already seen in Tesla's own very pricey $100,000 mobile? Well, Tesla is the king of range. People always complain. They have what's called range anxiety about electric vehicles. When they came out with the Model S and it had up to 300 miles of range, people were knocked out about that. And, of course, you had to pay for it. What's interesting was they initially saw the Model S with a range of batteries, like uh, 40 kilowatt hours and 60 kilowatt hours and 85 kilowatt hours. And they thought that people who wanted a budget car would go for the one that was 40 kilowatt hour battery with less range. They didn't. So we'll see if 200 miles is a sweet spot for people. But can Tesla make money with a $35,000 car with 200 mile range? That's a real challenge. On the other hand, I would also say that I think a lot of people would want the Tesla because they've been priced out of the Tesla market and now they can get into it for a lot less money. Let's talk about the charging apparatus for these vehicles. To what extent will the, the new Tesla Model 3 be able to connect the vehicle to the grid? What about things like wireless charging? I would guess that it's going to have wireless charging. I think Elon Musk is interested in that. But one thing it will definitely have is the ability to connect to Tesla's supercharger network. Stations across the country that are 480 volts and can basically fill the car up in about half an hour. Now, other countries, I'm thinking of China, thinking of India, they have air quality issues. So as I understand it, China is building up its own electric vehicle capabilities with inexpensive cars. How does that compare to what Tesla and the others have on the market? Well, Tesla has gone into China in a fairly big way, but it's found it challenging to say the least. There are a lot of companies in China building electric cars for the domestic market, but none of them have very big sales yet. The Chinese government has really committed itself to a big push to electrify the country's vehicle fleet, but it hasn't been acting very quickly to make sure that happens. The problem is there's not much of a charging network, and it's an extremely large country. Most people, maybe 90% in the U.S., charge at home. But in China, people don't live in suburban communities with garages. They live in apartment buildings. So charging at home is not likely to happen. And... There's got to be a really robust charging network, both at your community, maybe your apartment building would have a garage and your workplace would have charging and there'd be public chargers in every major city. That is far from happening in China. Yeah, you mentioned uh, charging electric vehicles at home. Of course, Tesla's come out with what they call the power wall. That's a battery array to be used at home. What do you think of that development? I think that's a really interesting development and it makes total sense for Tesla and its close relationship with a company called Solar City. The batteries in the uh, Powerwall are just the same batteries that are in the Tesla cars and can serve as backup for the solar panels from Solar City. So there's total sort of circular loop there and synergy. So the product makes complete sense. And we've long been talking about how the grid will need battery backup. But the device, it's a little bit expensive at $7,000. Essentially, it's a 7-kilowatt-hour battery array that you'd have in your house. So what about the notion of using the electric car as well as, say, a power wall to support a household? I mean, you can store a lot of electricity 
and use it in a very flexible way. That's taking off in a pretty interesting way. We have vehicle-to-grid communications, which is what you're talking about. And essentially, the car can be a rolling battery depository that can plug into the grid and in times of peak power demand can return power to the grid. And if just one electric car does that, it's not a big deal. But if you have, say, 100 of them, all with like 40 kilowatt hour batteries connected to a smart utility that is able to turn on their batteries when it needs them. And then it doesn't have to turn on, say, a backup generator or what might be a coal power plant that is in reserve. And the vehicles will still end up being charged when their owners get into them. And people will get paid for that. It has the potential to be a pretty good load leveler on the grid. Give me some blue sky thinking. Where will we be in five or 10 years as far as the car and energy markets are from your view? I think we're moving away totally from fossil fuels. I think we're headed towards an all electric fleet on the road. We're basically reached the point where range is no longer an issue. That's probably the biggest objection. But once you have 200 miles routinely at an affordable price, I think it's inevitable. And I think at the same time, we're also heading for a renewable energy grid. It's going to be hard to make it work, but I think we'll have an international effort to make that happen. Jim Montevalli is an environmental writer who specializes in green transportation. His new book is called High Voltage. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Great to be on with you. Always a pleasure, Steve. By the way, Solar City is an underwriter of Living on Earth, but has no input or editorial say in the program. Electrical banana It's gonna be a sudden craze Electrical banana It's bound to be the very next phase Coming up, a vision of a future city without one of its major hassles, parking. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We've all been there, heading to the mall or the theater or dinner, and it ends up taking longer to find a parking space than it did to get there in the first place. This isn't just frustrating. It turns out all these cars driving in circles are bad for the climate and bad for the air we breathe. But writer Clive Thompson thinks that one of the answers to this parking problem is not so far in the future, self-driving cars. His new essay in Mother Jones magazine is called No Parking Here, and he joins us now to discuss it. Welcome to Living on Earth, Clive. Good to be here. Clive, you say the average automobile spends the majority of its time sitting still. So if every driver is, say, sleeping the eight hours out of every 24-hour period and presumably not driving, that's a lot of time in parking spaces. Tell me about the math here. I mean, the math is pretty crazy. Your car spends 95% of its time sitting in one place. And here's the real problem is that you've got your car at home and it does, it mostly just sits there. And then you drive it for a very brief time to work and it has to find a place to sit there, right? And then maybe mm -hmm. you drive it a very brief time out to dinner, but it has to have a place to sit there. And mm -hmm. then you drive back home. In each place where the car is sitting, there needs to be parking. And this, is, this becomes sort of an interesting sort of geometric problem. 
to accommodate the amount of time those cars sit there, our society had to build way more parking than there are cars, right? And the upshot is, you know, there are about 250 million cars and passenger trucks, light trucks in the country. But the estimates are that there's close to a billion parking spots. I calculated the square footage, square mileage, and it's basically about the size of Connecticut is how much parking we have in the U.S. And, you know, there are all sorts of problems that stem from that amount of parking. I guess on just an aesthetic level, parking is pretty ugly. I I was talking to one architect during the story who said, there's a lot of books that are like the 10 best buildings in America or the 10 best bridges in America. There is no book of the 10 best parking lots in America because they're just (laughs) ugly as sin, right? So they're ugly. They produce a lot of runoff, you know, like you get a big rain, hits this massive parking lot, water's got nowhere to go, so it rushes the edges and it just rips the topsoil off whatever field it encounters. So it causes these kind of environmental problems. But but, but wait a second. If an average vehicle is parked most of the time with the motor turned off, isn't that a an environmental benefit that the thing isn't running? You would hope so. But the problem is, is that actually parking lots encourage excessive driving because... When people go to park in a city, they have trouble sometimes finding a parking spot, right? Because there's this congestion in a city. And so people will sort of circle around looking for parking. And studies show that it dramatically increases the amount of time we spend driving. In fact, my neighborhood in Brooklyn, they did a study. They found if you see cars driving past you, standing on a corner, see cars driving past you, 30 to 60% of those cars are circling looking for parking. They're not going anywhere. They are no longer transferring people from point A to point B. They are now just circling. And so what this means is that in a city, an enormous percentage of the carbon being put out by cars isn't getting people anywhere. It's just looking for parking. And in your article... Do you say that the death of the ubiquitous uh, parking space may be on its way thanks to self-driving cars? Yes, yeah. There are some interesting trends afoot here. So here's the thing about self-driving cars is that it's likely that by the time these things get fully licensed to be on the road, which is you know, 15, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, they will probably be deployed not individually. Like It won't be like you or me buying a self-driving car. It'll probably be mostly fleets. Right? So, you know, your local taxi company will just buy 200 self-driving cars. Or the city might decide that it's going to create a kind of a public transit thing with cars. They'll buy 1,000 self-driving cars. Uber and Lyft, they are actively researching to build their own self-driving cars. So the theory is that actually self-driving cars will mostly be fleet-based. And that this will be quite interesting because, you know, you get a fleet of self-driving cars servicing a large or mid-sized town. And what you'd effectively have is a world where you need to go somewhere, you pull your phone, and you say, okay, I need a car, and the car sort of comes zipping right up to you, and maybe there's someone already in it. Like, they're going, it's, car, it's, it's intelligent carpooling. They're kind of going in the same direction as you. It's gonna, you guys are going to split the cost. It's, this is going to cost you almost nothing because you're sharing the cost. And so you'll still be taking cars all day long, but they won't be cars you own. They'll just be these fleets that are incredibly easy to get because there's just so many of them out there running around. And the thing about those cars is that they're not going to need to park ever. They will basically just be driving and driving and driving and driving around ferrying people around in this very intelligent, efficient way. So this is the vision that I was surprised by this. I had thought that people were going to buy their own self-driving cars. But over and over again, the experts I talked to, the urban planning experts, the car experts, they see this as the legit. And it sort of makes sense when you think about it, because the truth is owning a car is expensive. You know, you got to find somewhere to put it. you got to pay for these repairs. And young people are buying far fewer cars than you would expect at their age. 
they are driving personally far fewer miles than you'd expect at their age. And they are, in fact, actually even less likely significantly to have their driver's licenses. So it's very, it's, this, is a, this is a cultural shift, which is also very interesting. So that's the kind of the one-two punch that's moving us towards the end of parking. Self-driving cars and a generation of people that actually are less interested in owning their own car. So what happens to the ability to hang one's own personal set of dice from the from the mirror of the car, A, and <laughs> and then, you know, and let's face it, uh, for older folks, uh, you know, teenagers remember that when you got that license, it was, well, it was helpful in the dating game. Yeah, no, no. I, I, this is a really interesting cultural shift. I'm 47, so I'm, in my generation, I grew up in suburban Toronto, and you still, you know, we had a, we had a pretty good subway and bus system, but you still needed to get your driver's license for a certain level of autonomy and freedom. Because if you wanted to kind of move around the suburbs, you, you needed to be able to drive, get your family's car, take someone out on a date, you know. So I definitely grew up with the thing that the boomers grew up with, which is that the association that the car was kind of a rite of passage. It was you becoming a little more adult and having some autonomy and independence. That experience is far less common for young people. It's not gone. You know, if you live in a rural area, you still really need a car to get around. But more and more, younger people are living in more densely packed areas, and they're discovering that in those situations, they can really move around pretty easily without driving. The other thing about young people is that, it's pushing away from driving, is that they like using their phones. For them, autonomy is about having a phone, being able to communicate all day long when they want to. And you can't use your phone while you're driving. Those are rival activities, and they would rather use the phone than drive. Hey, so um, what's your experience been like in a self-driving car? It was very interesting. Um, So I get inside this self-driving car in the parking lot of Google, and I'm in the back seat. In the front seat, there's an engineer in the driver's seat, not touching the wheel. The car starts driving off, and I'm looking in the front wheel, and basically, you know, the car is just, it's as if a ghost is driving it. The, The wheel is turning itself. And at first, it was, for the first, like, three or four minutes, it was pretty unsettling because... It really feels weird to have no one, you know, no human driving that car. But it quickly became kind of boring because it turns out that Google's cars are very defensive drivers. And so, you know, we'd be driving along, you know, going along fairly fast. But the instant someone starts to edge out into our lane, our car would immediately slow down and give way. So in one sense, it actually very quickly became boring. And at first I thought, well, this is going to be hard. You know, I'm trying to write a story. It's supposed to be exciting. But I I became you know, convinced that actually boring is what you want. You know, when it comes to driving, you want driving to be predictable and safe and boring. The one thing that most computer scientists and urban traffic experts say that will make them even safer is if there's actually a lot of them on the road. Because if all the cars are robotic and if they can all talk to each other, well, then they can really start to, you know, optimize for good behavior and minimize bad behavior. You know, they'll, they aren't going to make any stupid calls. They're not going to make any emotional decisions. You could even do things. This is pretty funny. There's a guy at the University of Austin who's done these, these modelings where he says, well, you know, if you had all robot cars on the road, maybe you don't need stop signs because the cars can just sort of weave through each other, right? They can just go right into the intersection 
and just go right through and slow down and speed up to avoid other cars. And you and and he's done these these little animations showing what it looks like, and it's just wild. And the upside is the traffic really keeps moving. So one of the other weird upsides of self-driving cars is that we could actually move around a lot more quickly and efficiently, which again reduces emissions because there is a huge amount of emissions that come from a car slowing down and then speeding up again at an intersection. So one big benefit from self-driving cars would be to eliminate, essentially, uh, parking spaces for vehicles. So what do you do with all that land that becomes available now? It's a super interesting question. I mean, most downtown cores are about 30% parking, right? So think about that. That's prime land. So what would you do if you freed up 31% fresh land to do something with? What would you do with it? Well, you know, you know, maybe the city could finally do some of the things that we've always wanted to do. Like we could build more housing. Housing is a huge issue, certainly in markets like overheated markets, San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, New York, desperate for more housing. Or you could convert some of it to parks. I mean, there's a, there's this little parklet program in San Francisco that's a real blast where they they let a merchant, if you want to, if you've got a, and you've got a coffee shop, you can pay the city a certain amount per year for the parking spot in front of your cafe, and, you, and you're allowed to turn it into a park. And so there's all these very funny little beautiful parks where people have, they've grassed it over and they put like, you know, a little tree in and stuff, or they maybe put up a bench and there's kind of a sitting area. And if you were able to make it green, if you could you know, throw in plants and throw in grass in that area, you could also really cool cities down because all that 31% is all, it's all asphalt and that heats up a city. It's the, what they call the, um, the urban heat island effect. Sun hits the asphalt, heats it up. It's like a battery storing heat. Sun goes down, it keeps the city hot at night. Well, if you have grass and trees, it doesn't do that. It cools things down a lot. That would make it way more fun and livable and, again, have fantastic environmental effects because now you're doing much less air conditioning, using less electricity for air conditioning. So, you know, the sort of fun things that begin to cascade out of getting rid of parking, it's delightful and there's, there's all these different layers. Yeah, on the real estate side, I mean, you could even take it to the bank. Famously, here in Boston a couple of years ago, there was an auction of two rare tandem parking spaces. So in other words, you know, front to back, behind a building on Commonwealth Avenue in the ritzy Back Bay neighborhood. Those spots went for $560,000, more than a half a million dollars. <laughs> exactly. That's That's how... In a really overheated market that, you know, we're talking about billions and billions of dollars worth of land. And I mean, and, and, and I mean, the one thing is, you know, if we want to manage this well, the cities have to start thinking now because, you know, this, they may have to make these decisions 15 years now. What are they going to do with that stuff? And there'll definitely be a lot of interests pushing, you know, there'll be developers that want it. There'll be um, school boards that want it. There'll be parks people that want it. So, you know, these we got to start having these conversations now so that we make reasoned and good, equitable decisions 15 years down the line if and when this starts happening. Clive, how do you see this system dovetailing with mass transit? In one sense, you can already see it happening, which is that down in San Francisco, where Uber is really big, a very significant chunk of their rides, I think almost one third of their rides, begin or end at a station on the rail lines. So what people are using Uber for is to get them to public transit. And so what public transit really needs is to understand, they're, they're trying to wrestle with what's the demand for these services because they actually want to build public transit in a way that works with these mobility things to actually enhance both, right? You could easily imagine that if you now were confident as a city that you didn't have to worry maybe quite so much about 
building some bus lines because these types of services were going to be useful in, in well-to-do neighborhoods. You could focus the bus lines on areas that where people are less likely to use these services, but you could also build a rail confident that people will be able to get to and from the rail more quickly. The other thing cities are thinking about is, okay, there is a significant chunk of the population that is unbanked, right? So they do not have bank cards, they do not have credit cards uh, in more low-income sectors. Well, the price of these on-demand ride services is dropping quite sharply. You know, if you if you do an Uber pool, you know, you might only pay three or four bucks for a ride. That actually gets it. Lower-income families could find it a amenable way to get around, but they need a card to participate. So that I know the city of San Francisco is already thinking, well, so are there things we could do? Could we set up some sort of card system that would work with public funds or whatnot to help get these people so they can actually participate in this? So really what you're seeing is the public transit systems are thinking, how can we, if, if this is a, a massed movement trend, how can we work with it so that it actually aids our goal of moving people around efficiently? Clive, give us the Rip Van Winkle report here. You fall asleep, presumably not at the wheel, and you wake up now in a couple of decades. What do you expect to see on city streets? You know, I think 20 years from now, if the predictions that everyone has been giving me hold up, here's what we're going to see. We'll see cities where you look at the street and the street is really full of a lot of traffic. Like this is not the absence of traffic. If anything else, there might be even more cars whizzing around, but they're never stopping. They're never parking. You would decide, okay, I need to go across town. You pull out your phone and within like 15 to 20 seconds, a car would pull up and get you like not five minutes. You know, we're talking seconds. A car would pull up. You jump in, there's someone there. You go across town, you get across town pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, you'd go through these intersections that maybe don't have lights anymore. You just you know, zip right through. And when you when you got out of the car, you might be stepping onto what is essentially a little park on the edge of the road, right? You know, because that, that, that's what we've done with that space now. The other thing, though, you'd find is that there would definitely be some, probably be some very significant labor dislocation. You'd wake up in a world where millions and millions of people who used to be employed in jobs that paid, you know, not great, but pretty well, to drive cars around, to drive trucks around, they do not have those jobs anymore. And you could imagine that going pretty poorly if there's not decent public policy to try and figure out how to encourage economic growth that gives those people jobs. If they don't have jobs, we could have an awful lot of turmoil. That world, you could be, be your, your great mobility, but at the cost of significant economic and social upheaval. Clive Thompson is a freelance journalist, blogger, and science and technology writer. His piece entitled No Parking Here appears in the current issue of Mother Jones magazine. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Clive. Great conversation. I had a lot of fun. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emma Fitzgerald, Lauren Hinkle, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, Jenny Doring, John Duff, Peter Boucher, Amber Rodriguez, Jamie Kaiser, and Jennifer Marquis. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade, Jake Rigo, and Noel Flatt. Allison Learish Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Also from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.